Well, good morning. Thank you. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. I was here a few years ago, and uh, you've grown quite a bit since then. Um, it, it's great to be part of uh, Church Planning Network. We uh, have been in and around helping kind of shape and uh, plant churches for several years, and so being able to watch Ken and Antioch kind of come into being and see what God's doing here is super exciting. Uh, we're pulling a network of a lot of those churches that we've uh, had a relationship with over the years together, and seeing churches planting churches is a, a, an amazing piece of the kingdom that kind of shows up in the world. The guy who planted our church, who helped fund it, it was from Florida, passed away this last year in his 70s, and their church planted over 200 churches. Uh, and, and so to be able to, to see, like, in the course of his life, he plants a church that plants 200 churches. Uh, and where does that end up in, in another 70 years, you know? And, that, and that's kind of the, the kingdom works that way. It's reproduction. And so it's great to be a part of that, to be with you today. Uh, what I want to share this morning comes out of Matthew chapter 13. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me there. And it is really uh, parables of Christ's teaching on the kingdom. The kingdom of God is one of these interesting concepts that I, I think for many of us we find it hard to understand for a couple reasons. One is we don't talk about kingdom today. We live in a democracy. We vote um, as if that matters at times, <laughs> but we still do it. Uh, not to, I mean, it's a good thing to do. I'm in Portland, so i got to catch everything here. In fact, if I was drinking out of a plastic water bottle at Imago, I'd get hate mail. Um, or get hit in the face with a skateboard or something. Cause, so I guess what I'm saying is it's good to be with people that don't love the environment as much as the people at Imago. <laughs> oh. Um, but yeah, so, so he teaches on the kingdom, and the kingdom is hard for us to understand. It's, it's this upside-down reality. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, then when you put your faith in Christ, when you experience that, for some of you that was a moment. You prayed and you trusted Christ. For others of you, you went through a season and you looked back and realized, wow, I believe this. But, but, but whatever that experience was, the reality was that you were transferred from uh, what, what Scripture says is the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the sun. You've been transferred into the kingdom. And within the context of this new world, the rules have changed. The way we think and understand are, are different in the kingdom. And when I say understanding, I mean the way things are put Together, the way that you understand um, things like Scripture, the way you understand evil, the way you understand the moments where God doesn't seem to be there, the way that you understand the beauty of who Jesus is when really he was just a homeless ex-carpenter. Right? The way that you understand Scripture's warnings in the reality of our world. That all changes when you are transferred into the kingdom, but it's hard to get used to. And it's hard to get used to for a couple reasons. One is 
our thinking, the way we understand, is often shaped by one of two places. It's always sort of shaped by our feelings, but, but we're shaped by our religious context. So sometimes it's shaped by church, by our understanding of, of religion, or it can be under, uh, shaped by culture, how we understand the world's perceptions of what Jesus has to say. And in the kingdom, we're really talking about not being people of the world, and we're not talking about being isolated religious people, but we're talking about this radical middle where the church is a peculiar people. They're in the world, but they're not of the world. They, and what that means is it doesn't mean bumper stickers, right, or fish on the back of your car. Not to take away from those of you who have them. I can't have one, my wife has said. Uh, it's just as bad if I, lose, if I lose my mind on the road and then there's a big Jesus fish, we don't do that. Um, because then I'm of the world. Uh, but, but, but rather, we are people in the world, but our vision, our perspective, the way, we, the way we handle life, the way we understand, the way reality is put together, is very peculiar in this world. That's Christ's vision for his people, that his church wouldn't build the church, but they would just be these called out people who are living into this new reality of the kingdom and are madly in love with the king. It's so unfamiliar to us that we'll spend the rest of our life figuring out, but it's super exciting. It's this great adventure. Uh, the unfamiliarity of it reminds me of a time when my wife and I were in uh, the UK, and we rented a car, and I got in the car, and there was no steering wheel uh, or pedals, and she got in, and there was over on her side, and I'm a control freak, so that's bad for both of us. Um, so we switched sides, uh, and, and I'm sitting there, and, and everything's wrong, right? The stick shift is over here. She's sitting in the driver's seat, but I have the wheel. Um, I'm making tight left turns and wide right turns, which is wrong. And I'm trying to explain it to all the people there, but they don't understand. Um, I didn't know that was one of the things we relieved ourselves of when we came here and took this place. Um, <laughs> they were like, and we're going to be on the wrong side of the road from now on. That'll bother him forever. Um, so, so, so every time you walked up to the car, what side do you think I walked up to? Right, the wrong side every time. It's like, oh gosh, what? And, and by the end of it, I, wasn't, I didn't really become familiar. I became irritated. Like, what's wrong with these people? Um, but, but that's sort of how it is in the kingdom, that you find yourself getting in and you're on the wrong side of the car. That you're responding to circumstances, and maybe you're asking, where's God, or who's God, or what happened? And, and Jesus is actually going, no, 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 we're on this side. We drive on this side now. And it feels awkward and it feels upside down. And the reality is Christ is saying so much has happened at salvation that you've not only been transferred into this kingdom and given a new life, but you're going to be spending the rest of your life exploring what that means. So in Matthew 13, what's happening is he's sitting there with disciples and he's speaking in parables. 
Parables, these stories where truth comes through the back door and it kind of hits you in a different way. But what he's doing is he's saying, I want you to be familiar with the ways of the kingdom. I want to put a frame around life for you, this new reality. And I, I want you to begin to see and be a people who live that peculiarity in the world. That you will shine like stars. You'll be a city on a hill. You'll be this different type of person. But I need you to know what the kingdom of God is like. And so that's how this, uh, that's kind of where this chapter goes. So we're going to look at seven parables uh, that, that kind of create five realities. And I, I just want us to explore what does that look like for us? Because here's the point. You cannot afford to think something about yourself or your life that isn't true of you in the kingdom. You can't afford to think things about God or reality that aren't true in the kingdom. Because this is the ultimate reality that you will endure in forever. So become familiar with it. Because it's going to be your entire world, right? So you can't afford to think something that's not true about you in the kingdom. So let's follow these parables and see where they go. Verse 1 is the parable of the sower. Jesus tells this parable to this crowd, and he basically says in verse 3, a farmer goes out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and they ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil, and it sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seeds fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, and still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced the crop of 160, 30 times what was sown. He who has ears to hear, let him hear." And when he gets alone with the disciples, they're wanting to know, what, what is this? What, is, what are you talking about? And here's what he says in verse 18. Listen to what the parable means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the seed along the path. The one who received the seed that fell on the rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root... He lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, make it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. When, when it comes to following Jesus, I remember when I first became a Christian that, that ever, I didn't have a Bible. And um, the, the youth pastor bought me a Bible, this big, thick NIV study Bible. And um, I, I was so, like church was so foreign to me that it literally, I have it to this day, it says youth pasture. Because uh, I didn't know what a, I'd never heard of a pastor before, and then I heard of the sheep. So I was like, okay, so we're sheep, and then he must be the pastor because um, he's feeding us. With a, 
I was trying to put it together really, really hard. So, he, so here I am, and I, it still says that. Uh, I couldn't erase it. It was in pen. Um, but these people were so excited about this book. And I remember being very confused by that. And I went home. Very, like I, I showed up at church on Palm Sunday. I didn't know what that was. I went home. I found some old, dusty King James thing that my mom had. And I started reading it. And I got to like chapter 9 in Genesis. And then everyone was having all these kids and living to be 900 years old, and I thought these people are crazy. Um, and, and what I didn't realize, though, is that this, this word thing is so central to how God does everything. So the way he creates the world is he speaks it into being. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, is the logos, the word. And the word becomes flesh, and it moves into our neighborhood. And it incarnates, right? His word goes forth and it never returns void. And so the message of the kingdom is his word that goes out and it has four different responses to it. When the gospel's preached, it has four different responses. The word then creates this new creation inside of us. And so there, there's moments, I think, there's, that we respond to the word. If it's a cultural moment, we, we respond to the word and we say, why in the world would I ever believe the Bible or put my life under its authority? Old stories, outdated, or the morality is kind of uh, totally outdated. It's confusing. God seems angry at times. And we, we know that God would never be angry with us. And so, so whatever it is, we just kind of chuck it. And, or the religious culture is, I will master that. I will know everything there is to know about the Bible. I will dissect it and cut it up and put it into little jars and, and be like, there's God. I have him in a box. Right? It, it, and, and Jesus says, it's not so much what you understand, but the way that the, the, way that the kingdom works and operates is through the word. It's through Scripture. It's through the gospel being proclaimed. It's the message of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And there, there are four ways that it always works. It shows up in hearts and you don't even hear it because Satan takes it away. It shows up in people who get super excited in the moment. And as soon as, by the time you get to the car, you're like, I can't really remember what that was about. But it was really good. It shows up when, with many of us who we find ourselves passionate, like it's taking root, we're excited about this new picture of Christ or whatever it is, but then it's like, man, I, I have bills, I have anxiety, life is hard, and, and, and all those worries start to choke it out. And yet, there's this fourth soil, uh, the heart. And the way that the kingdom of God works is it, it falls like a seed into our heart. And there it bears fruit. And it produces a crop. It's not just knowledge, right? And, and it doesn't respond to the Bible and say, why would I put my life under its authority? What it does is it says, I want to take all of the promises of God. And I want them to shape my heart. I want to hear all of the commands of God. I want them to produce a harvest in me. 
I want the Spirit of God through the Word of God to make the life of Christ more and more of who I am. And, and so what we're doing in the kingdom is we're, we're not saying, why should I put my life under its authority? Uh, and we're not trying to put ourselves over it and dice it up, but we're listening. And, and we're asking and inviting the Spirit of God to, to pull the weeds out of our hearts so that our heart can produce that massive harvest, which is the person and life of Jesus. And so what we're praying in the kingdom is that is that your promises and your commands would show up 30, 60, 100 times in my life. But we're contrasting religious people where we're, we're debating a bunch of issues and figuring out who knows more and how do we trump each other. We're contrasting a cultural thing that says, uh, I, I want all the good parts of God, but none of the stuff I disagree with. And we're actually coming in humility and saying, God, work through your word as you do mysteriously, powerfully, supernaturally to make me a different person in my heart, in the center of my personhood, in who I am. That feels unfamiliar at first. But, but when we begin to understand that the kingdom is the way real reality happens, then we're praying, I want your word your promises, your commands, the revelation of who you are. I want that to change me, to shape me. Let's look at the next parable, which is the parable of the weeds. Jesus tells this parable and he says that a man goes out and he sows good seed in his field, but um, when everyone's asleep, his enemy comes and sows weeds among the wheat and then the enemy goes away and when the wheat sprouts and forms head then the weeds also appeared and the owner's servants came to him and said sir didn't you sow good seed in your field where then did the weeds come from an enemy did this he replied and the servants asked do you want us to go pull them no he answered because while you are pulling the weeds you may root up the wheat with them let both grow together until the harvest and at that time, I will tell the harvesters, collect the weeds, tie them in bundles to be burned and gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Well, he leaves the crowd and goes into the house and the disciples are like, uh, what in the world is going on there? And so he explains it in verse 37. He says, the one who sow good seed is the son of man. The field is the word, world and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. And as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, the weed out of his kingdom, everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And they will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Not the most seeker-sensitive kind of way to say things. Um, gnashing of teeth. <laughs> I mean, it's just not a friendly picture. The issue is this. We ask ourselves this all the time. Both the religious mindset and the cultural mindset. If God is good and God is loving, 
then why evil? If God cares so much, then why is there evil in the world? That, that's the question. When we walk up to the car and we find ourselves on the wrong side, that's the familiar question. And Jesus, in all of his infinite wisdom, is sitting there, and, and he's sitting there with his disciples. He's like, you really need to understand this. Because you're going to live in a world where evil's going to exist. And so there's two questions in the parable. The first question is, how did this happen? Right? There's, there's weeds and there's wheat, and somehow they're growing together, and you only put the good wheat in, so how did this show up? And the answer is really simple. An enemy did this. Now we come back and we go, okay, well, I got a whole bunch more questions. And, and Jesus is like, okay, but I'm not answering those. Like, wow, uh, that makes me angry. I want more. And he simply says an enemy did this. Their second question is a practical question. Should we pull some weeds? Which is what all of us want to do when we see evil, when we experience evil. Like, let's go pull weeds. Religious people love to pull weeds, right? And and we want to get our church as pure as possible, as right as possible. We want to get all the weeds out. So it's like we're walking around with religious roundup on and we're spraying everything in its sight. It's like, I'm sorry, what'd you say? I think you quoted that. Right? Just mess that guy up. Just take him out. Until we're left with just us. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and because the assumption is always someone else's weed, and I'm wheat. I'm always wheat. And you're like, really, are you? Um, it could be that we're not pulling out the weeds right now because God's still given us a chance to be transformed. There's a whole bunch of weeds that are becoming wheat. And so the answer is never given to us to take care of evil. You exterminate evil. This is before crusades. This is before every non-Christian's greatest sort of, I'm going to throw this lob ball at you. Why is there so much evil in the world? And then the next one is, why has the church been like it has? Why has it been mean? You know? You're like, the church has been bad at following Jesus. That's why. The problem isn't with Jesus. We needed more Jesus. But before the church began, Jesus said, this is the way it's going to be. And I want you to understand that evil is going to exist within the kingdom of God. And I want you to persevere in the midst of evil circumstances, in an evil world, because I am going to judge evil once and for all. Evil things and evil people. And then you will shine with my righteousness in the kingdom of your Father. It's really important for the twelve to know this. The twelve, many of whom will be crucified like Jesus. Many who will be put on trial for proclaiming this king. Many of, of all will be martyred. Right? Evil is going to exist in the world. And so, in the kingdom, what we do in that moment is we love our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. We go back from Matthew 13 to Matthew 5 through 7, and we realize this is how we become peculiar, 
This is why we look different in the world. That in a world where evil exists, we don't use those conditions to accuse God. But we find ourselves in those conditions hoping in God, radically loving enemies, and longing for His justice. It's really important that we understand that, that that becomes familiar to us because our natural question will be, why God must not be good? It's like, no, God is really good. God's so good that in His patience and long-suffering, He's converting weeds to wheat. And in the midst of that transformation, evil will still exist. So we, we say, I trust, I have hope in the midst of these e- evil circumstances, evil days, because I know that you're growing your kingdom even in that con- those conditions, and that you're going to judge evil once and for all. Once and for all. Let's look at the parable of the mustard seed. He told them another parable. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in the field, and though it's the smallest of all your seeds, it grows into the largest of garden plants. It becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. And um, really we're talking about how God works. One of the questions that we often ask when we look at our life, when we look at our circumstances, is where is God? Both in, in a religious context we ask that. I think, I think in a very irreligious way we say, where is God? I, I think of friends who are atheists. They think about God more than anybody, which is ironic to me. It's like, right, you're spending a lot of time talking about someone you don't believe in, which I don't do. <laughs> if I don't believe in something, I don't think about it. You think about it. But the question is always, where is God? And that question is derived from looking at our resources, looking at our circumstances, and going, I don't see it. We live in a world where everything that works well is large, efficient, and successful. Uh, Jesus refuses to play by those rules, which drives me nuts. Uh, Because I'm thinking, if I was Christ, I definitely would have waited for a little more technological advancement instead of this word-of-mouth thing. Right? I would have definitely got the Facebook going. Huge fan page. Maybe I parachute in during a Super Bowl. Uh, that gets broadcast all over the place. I want everyone, I, I want it to be effective. I want it to be efficient. Instead of taking the B team and going, hey, you 12, actually 11, uh, why don't you go tell people about me? And we'll change the world. And you're like, what? Really? That's what God came up with. So we ask ourselves, where is God? We look at our life and it's not effective and it's not efficient. And man, he seemed to be willing to take these long loops out of the narrow way to teach me stuff. And it's like, man, we could have went from A to B if you just would have did it, done it. And Jesus says, here's what I need you to to know. Here's how I need you to think in the kingdom. That the question isn't, where am I? 
the, the reality is in the small thing that is there, that's where all the potential of the kingdom is. In the hidden place that you can't see is where I'm infiltrating your life. That's where I'm infiltrating the world. And, and so, you 11, you are the mustard seed, right? You are the yeast. Your prayers that no one sees are actually finding their way into the kingdom of heaven and it's affecting everything. And so where you hope is not in the things that you want to be there, but in who actually is there. You judge your circumstances by the small thing that actually still is there. And all the kingdom potential is there. And that's where you hope. That had to that had to be a go-to place for the first disciples, right? They had to be sitting there in jail, right? Going, well, that, that went quick. <laughs> we had a really good start. Then uh, Stephen gets persecuted. Now I'm in jail, and uh, this thing could be over by midnight. But there's the one thing. There's the small thing. There's the hidden thing. There's the promise. And so you think about your kids who are far from God, right? You think about that, that sin that you just can't quite get over. You think about a marriage that, man, it just seems like after so many years we would have figured this out by now. You think about your singleness and wondering, will I ever, and, and God's saying, I quit looking at your circumstance and judging it by the things that aren't there. But, but look at that one thing, that tiny mustard seed thing that is there. The hidden thing that you can't see but you trust is there because in the kingdom, when you get to the right side of the door, right, this is how I operate. This is how I do it. And I'm going to change the whole world this way. That is definitely like driving in England for me. Okay? That is not my natural way of operating. But it is the hope that he says, this is how you have to understand reality now. Look at verse, uh, where are we, 44. The kingdom of heaven, the parable of the hidden treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, and when a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven's like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and he bought it. Um, th this really is all about wonder. And, and so in one sentence, this, this parable of the treasure kind of just like a bomb just explodes all over us. The, the first time I, I heard it, I, I, remember, I remember thinking about this parable and thinking, I, I, I would not feel like joy to me. Like if I said, hey, everybody, the kingdom is worth you going and selling everything you have for. Most of you would say, I agree. Totally not going to do that, but I agree. Like in my head, that, that's true. 
And, and, and so from a duty standpoint, it's one of those, like, I know that's how I should be and think, but I just don't want to. And, and, and so in your mindset, you, you just think Jesus is just up there going, you're a loser. Like, really? You can't sell everything for me? I sold everything for you. And you're like, oh, yes, that's right. Um, and, and the thing that messes this whole parable up is this one little three-letter word, uh, joy. Joy. In his joy, he goes and sells everything. And now I recognize this parable has nothing to do with duty. It has everything to do with my affections. And so what, I, what I'm clinging to, my stuff, my things, my life, whatever it is, I'm not doing it because I'm bad per se. I'm doing it because I think that's more attractive than Jesus. It's like I believe the wrong way instead of just behave the wrong way. Most of us think we believe right and we behave wrong. The truth is we live out of our hearts. Jesus has already said that in the parable of the sower. So here we are, and if we could put this in economic terms, it's like this. The guy, you find a chest with $6 billion in it, let's say. And so you pick it up and you take it over to this abandoned warehouse. It's, a, you know, it's 150 grand. You hide it inside the walls of this abandoned warehouse. And then you got to go sell everything you got to buy the warehouse. And you have a few awkward moments. Explain to your wife, I just need the wedding ring for a few weeks. We're going to, right? I just need to sell. But everything about that would be like, totally. I'm totally doing that. Because in 30 days when we close at escrow, I'm a billionaire. So I have no problem letting go of all this because I want to. I want to. You, you, you're joyfully throwing yard sale after yard sale. You're like, woohoo! we're down to almost nothing. This is awesome, right? In your joy, you're doing that. And so what Jesus is saying in this parable isn't, um, it isn't the question of, Man, I'm tired of following Jesus and everything about the world is more attractive. The real issue is, why haven't I seen Jesus as that attractive? Jesus is saying the kingdom, uh, the king, the kingdom, it's so attractive that it makes logical sense for you to joyfully give every resource you have to gain Christ. It makes sense. So in the kingdom, we don't look at our resources and our gifts and our lives as something we try to protect from God. Like, we'll just give you a little bit to stay on your good side. But we realize we're the most logical thing we could do is give up everything we have that we're going to ultimately lose to gain the king and the kingdom that we will never lose. Like that, scripturally, is wisdom. And the other one is foolishness. It's foolishness. And so the framework coming to the right side of the car is to say, I'm so grateful to be loved by the king. I'm so in awe to be captured by the heart of Christ that I'm asking God to continue to grow that affection in me. That I want Jesus more and more.
And the crazy part about this parable is this parable isn't really about you and I selling all our stuff to get Christ. It's about Christ giving up everything to get you. That he gave up everything for the joy set before him to endure the cross, scorn its shame, and get a people for himself. You're the treasure. That that messes you up. (laughs) But once you see that, then you what? What do you want to do? You want to worship, right? Really? Me? I'm the one that you would leave all that for? To gain me? And now you want to love him. So in the kingdom, we, we do. We're going, that's, that's my heart, is to be more and more caught up in the love of Christ and give more and more of my life away to the king for a kingdom that I'll never lose. Let's look at the last one here, the parable of the net. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore and then they sat down and they collected the good fish in baskets but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will... Come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? Yes, they replied. Therefore, every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like an owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom uh, new treasures as well as old. One of the things that I think we believe in a religious context and probably also in a... um, Secular mindset would be the judgment of Christ is kind of a joke. Um, in, in the church world, we, we we're pretty sure that it doesn't pertain to us because we prayed a prayer and we trusted Christ, and so we're okay. And I'm not trying to undermine justification by faith. I think that is why we're okay. It's all about what Christ has done. But this warning is for us. It's for us to be warned, to take obedience seriously, uh, to, say, to, to take that work out your salvation with fear and trembling, like, God, I want to be the person that reflects you in the kingdom. I think, I think a secular mindset is sort of, it's just funny. Uh, it's just funny. Why, uh, Jesus is going to come back and judge the world, you know. And, and we sort of get caught up in that. But the, but the truth is, here's how that starts to frame your heart. You start to believe that there's so much grace, right, that I don't need to obey Christ, that I can sleep with my girlfriend and cheat on my wife and my taxes and everything else. There's so much grace that I don't have to love my neighbor. I don't have to give my stuff away. And frankly, he said he was coming back and he hasn't come back for a long time. So there's no sense of urgency to my obedience. But in the kingdom of God, we revere the king, right? It's C.S. Lewis's quote of he's not a tame lion, but he's good. Like Jesus is not messing around with this. He's not going, hey, there's a whole bunch of ideas about reality. Let me toss one in. Sort of a, it's a buffet. You pick and choose. He's saying this is ultimate reality and I am going to judge the world and so I want you to be warned. I want you to live 
into this warning. I want you to not play games with my word, not play games with my commandments, not play games with my kingdom. It's utterly serious. It was life and death for him. And some of you are on the fence, and it's just time for you to trust Christ and quit making excuses, right? And that's either the fence of belief for the first time. Some of it's the fence of actually submitting your life to Jesus. But at some point, you have to realize that you're not the author here. You're the responder. And his kingdom is a kingdom that will endure. And he's the king that will judge. And so there's this warning that he gives us. And it's for us. It's for us. As much as it's for the world, as much as it should create an urgency to tell people about Jesus and show people and display the kingdom, it's also, it's also a warning for, for me to take seriously. Am I playing games with this? The, um, the thing about Jesus' teaching, these seven parables, these five realities, is that we cannot afford to not allow them to be the framework of how we think. Because we live in a world full of evil. We live in a world where the Word of God is frowned upon. We live in a world where we don't often see God. And, and so all that Satan wants to do is use all those circumstances to attack your faith and bring you into a place of doubt. And Jesus is saying, before you even go anywhere... You need to know that that's reality. Those are the conditions. And my kingdom will be victorious in that place. The funny thing about this is that for some of you, as you begin to see it and understand it, you realize it's been there all the time. You just, uh, you just sort of missed it. You know, It's not like there's this thing that you need to go achieve. It's really, this is something I just need to believe. It's been there, but I haven't tapped into it. I heard this, um, this 911 call from a lady, and she was trapped in her car, and her battery died, and she was locked in her car. And she's, she calls 911, she's like, I'm in my car, it's getting really hot, my electric um, locks don't work anymore, and I need someone to get here quick. And the 911 operator said, can you pull up the lock? And then you hear this click. And then you hear an, oh, okay, thank you, click. <laughs> Here she was freaking out in the moment. And she had been a part of this technology for so long that she didn't realize, like, oh, I, oh okay, <laughs> I'm free. I'm free. And there's so many of you that feel trapped in this car that you can't get out of, this life you can't get out of, and you're looking for Christ to break in, and, and you think that it has to be some massive shift, and he's actually going, no, the kingdom is right here, you're in it. Just, just pull up the lock that you're not familiar with anymore, that you're not using very often. And so it's, it's really coming down to this place of saying, I'm going to put my faith in your kingdom. And I'm going to make Jesus king. 
ultimately, so that you can speak in and frame my reality. And really the response to that is just to, just to pull the lock up. Jesus, I trust you. I put my life under the authority of your kingdom. And let him do that radical mustard seed, pearl of great price, 160, 30-fold crop, right? Shining like the righteousness of Christ. Let him do that in your life because you're partnering with it. This is the answer to Jesus' prayer when he, said, when he prays, uh, pray your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. What we're praying is, God, that your word would come and produce a crop in my life, a harvest. That your way would come in this world that's full of evil, that I would endure and persevere and hope in your judgment. That your work would come in the smallness, in the hidden place, that I would believe that you're there. That your wonder would come. That I would treasure you as you have treasured me. And that your warning would come. Right? That I would take this ultimately seriously. And, and, and in that place, in the simplicity of faith, you would experience the transformation of Jesus. And Bend, Bend would experience a church full of people who aren't building a church. They're being the church. And they're displaying the kingdom as they worship and proclaim the greatness of their king. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, I, I pray with and uh, for my friends today um, for your greatness. Uh, we give you thanks. We confess how unfamiliar it is. We confess oftentimes that it is like um, our lives are like sitting in a car that we think is just locked up, not realizing that there's just a simple answer and, and it's to trust you and put our faith in you. So God, I, I do pray that your kingdom would come in our lives and our hearts that would come in this city, that it would be as it is in heaven. And that your word would come uh, in, into hearts and produce a great harvest. That you would make persevering saints out of us in the midst of evil conditions. That we would hope in your righteous judgment and that we would love our enemies and we would pray for those who persecute. That we would see many weeds become wheat. We would see the weeds in our own lives become fruit-bearing trees. That God, we, we pray that your kingdom would come in the small places, in the hidden things. That, that it would come to give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and to recognize that you are, you are unwaveringly, un, unstoppingly at work every day, every night in our lives, even when we can't see it. So we'd start seeing the small thing and hoping in the hidden thing. God, we pray that we would be more and more captured. Our hearts would be captured by the love of Christ. That we would be worshipers, ultimately. That we'd be known for people in our peculiarness in the culture as people who just love Jesus and they actually look like Jesus and they love like Jesus.
And then, God, we take it seriously. We would see you uh, as the meek and mild and gentle Jesus, but we'd also see you high and lifted up. We'd see you with the sword coming out of your mouth, with that tattoo on your leg as Revelation 14 uh, talks about, and that you would be coming back to judge. And, and we would have reverence for you, that you are not tame, but you're good and you're loving. And that we'd heed the warning and examine our hearts and our lives. And we would want to obey you and allow your spirit the space to deeply transform and change us. That we would have the intention of obedience, God. So God, today we declare that we cannot afford to think something about our lives that's not true. Um, it's not true in your kingdom. That isn't what you've said. And I pray that you would begin to create a, a familiarness to living into your reality. And we give you thanks, ultimately, for you are the one that transferred us into the kingdom through your cross, and your resurrection, and your ascension. And so we pray these things in your glorious name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, you guys.